Hi, and welcome to Sidewalk Talk. I'm Steve Fortunato, founder of Shovel the Sidewalk. We uh, help small businesses create their brands and their advertising. We believe in authentic storytelling to get the message out. And that is why we have this podcast called Sidewalk Talk. It's an opportunity for Western New Yorkers to tell their story and inspire others, uh, learn from people's mistakes, learn from their successes, and the idea mainly is to, to help people. Today our, our guest is uh, Dr. Jason Rizzo, Director of Mohs Surgery at Western New York Dermatology. Welcome to the show, Doc. Thanks for having me. So we're going to get to what Mohs is in a second, but first I want to kind of talk about a little bit about your, your, your background. You're a West New York native, West Seneca West? Yes. East, West Seneca West. West. So you are a fellowship-trained skin cancer surgeon. You have a special expertise in Mohs, uh, micrographic surgery and tissue sparing melanoma surgeries. You're going to have to explain what that means in a second. I think I actually have an idea. Went on to Syracuse University, right? Earned a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry, so you're a real dummy. Summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, right? Then you went to a UB School of Medicine. You had doctoral, a doctoral d degree in medicine and biochemistry, so you're an MD and a PhD. Um, okay, and then you completed your dermatology residency and micrographic surgery, so that would be what? Uh, a a fellowship, thing, yeah, a fellowship. fellowship in addition to the residency. Yeah, at the University of Michigan, which is, yes. as a lot of people know, is the most one of the most prestigious, uh, pre prestigious programs uh, in the world. So you're an expert in the diagnosis and treatment of all skin cancers. Skin cancer is your thing. You do a lot of stuff. Explain to us, number one, what Mohs is. What is Mohs surgery? Yeah. It has nothing to do with tacos. No, no. Welcome to Mohs, yeah. but not that type of Mohs. Yeah. So uh, it's actually uh, it was developed by a doctor in Wisconsin named Frederick Mohs. He was an oncology surgeon. And it's a, uh, a, a tissue sparing surgery, meaning it, you want to remove all the cancer cells in the skin and as little normal tissue as possible. So what that entails is basically removing the cancer cells and testing them um, during the surgery in this lab that we sit in right now to look all around at the edges, around it and under it, what we call the margins, and make sure that there are no roots. Because oftentimes with the skin cancer, what you see at the surface, it can be like looking at a tree stump in the swamp. There can be a root system below the surface you can't see with the naked eye. So you need to map that out under the microscope and if there are roots, you need to go back and remove them. Otherwise, that cancer will continue to grow or potentially spread. So this lets you do that. Map them out, remove all those cancer roots, get the highest cure rate with the smallest scar and preserving as much normal tissue as possible. How, how, how long ago did the doctor, did Mose, when did that? I believe it was developed in the 70s, so it's, yeah, but it's been, it's been refined over time. He used to use like a zinc-based paste. Mm -hmm. They called it chemo surgery. Now we use, uh, we actually freeze the tissue. Um, there's a machine here, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, mm -hmm. that does that. Um, we have new staining techniques. Um, people are applying it to other cancers. He actually, Dr. Mose, it's named after him. It doesn't stand for anything. It's mm -hmm. just Fred Mose, Mose Surgery. He actually was a, not a dermatologist. He was a regular cancer surgeon, and he wanted to apply this to other fields. And nobody really embraced him. So he walked across the hall. He was at the University of Wisconsin, and the dermatology department was there. And they said, this is a pretty good idea. We remove a lot of cancers, and we want to spare skin. So that's how Mohs surgery became a dermatology surgery. So when, when people think of cancer, they obviously think of chemo, they think mm -hmm. of radiation, mm -hmm. they, they think the worst. 
Um, this is one of the, so this is one of those situations. What that your slogan is: arrive with skin cancer, leave without it. So your patients literally come here, and this is a situation where whatever that skin cancer, they can't leave until you're done, right? They, they, they're, you're not gonna let them go until that skin cancer is gone. Absolutely, that is, our, that is always our goal. You know, I, the, one of the first things I tell my patients is, you know, when you hear that word, the cancer word, that's a scary word, no matter who you are, or where you come from, and we've all been touched by cancer differently. The good thing is that most of these skin cancers tend to just grow in the skin and stay in the skin, and they very rarely, if ever, spread. So we wanna remove that and get a very high cure rate. Um, there's different approaches based on different cancers, but the ones that we do the most surgery on, tend to, tend, we tend to get very extremely high cure rates, 99 plus percent. And with anything, nothing's 100% in life, but 99 plus is really pretty darn good. And uh, we can always work with patients to, to continue their surveillance and monitor them um, to, you know, oftentimes we're more worried about them getting other cancers than this cancer coming back. So it, it is a very curative procedure in the majority of the time. What types of cancers are those? When people think of skin cancer, yeah. they think of melanoma. Absolutely. So what are we talking about? So mostly what we're talking about is what we call non-melanoma skin cancer, meaning it's not melanoma, basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma of the skin. They start in the skin, they stay in the skin, very rarely spread. Um, they're the most common cancers in the world. Um, they are unfortunately becoming more and more common. They're due to sun damage. Nothing recently but 20, 30 years ago and there's a delay between the damage and when these cancers present themselves. And these cancers are very amenable to the Mohs procedure, the, the tissue sparing intraoperative surgery that we can have them arrive with cancer and leave without it. Uh, we also do a tissue sparing surgery for melanoma, um, which is similar to Mohs, but it, it takes um, a little longer to process the tissue. We can't do the instant processing, but we offer that similar procedure for melanoma, which has equally high cure rates. And that was developed at the University of Michigan um, where, uh, where I trained as well. So when someone has this procedure, um, when you say skin sparing, I, that makes sense. The, the idea obviously is the there's less scarring is you know this is not this is something where it's a it's an outpatient yes right? it's an outpatient procedure just like you know when you diagnose these cancers usually they take a piece of skin to sample it and see what it is they numb it up with lidocaine like at the dentist novocaine and it's just a little pinprick and then we take a piece of skin when they come to see me it's the same thing we numb the area with the local numbing feels like a pin pinprick and after that bee sting there's there's nothing it's just you'll feel pressure and temperature but no sharp pain we remove the cancer, you're awake during the surgery, you can eat, you can drink. Um, most of the time is just waiting. When we remove that piece of skin, we take where the biopsy, where the cancer we know it is, and we test all around and under it, little disc of skin. We bring it into this lab and we, and we test it. They wait, we keep it bandaged, we have television, we have you know streaming, internet, videos and all that fun stuff, coffee, tea, snacks. They just wait with their family and friends. We process the tissue, we know if we got everything. If not, we go back and repeat that. Each time, each time it takes about an hour, and most of the day is just waiting, and then when we're done, we can kind of stitch that up and make it look as normal as possible. And since we're taking our time, I'd rather go back once or twice and take small little pieces than take a huge piece and get it the first time. So the tissue sparing is removing all the cancer and as little normal skin as possible. It tends to be spots on the head and neck because a few millimeters, if you, I can spare you a few millimeters on your nose or your ear, that's a big deal. You know, there's only so many millimeters of skin on your nose and your ear. If it's on your body and extremities, a few millimeters not necessarily as valuable. So we tend to do this procedure on very large lesions on the body and extremities or ones that are very likely to have roots. 
but we try to do it almost always on any lesion on the head and neck because it's really worth that tissue sparing. And also, not only is it tissue sparing, but it has a higher cure rate. So these cancers tend to happen, you know, they're happening earlier and earlier in life and people are young and healthy and we're living longer and longer. So these can recur, you know, with a regular surgery, you cut it out, you stitch it up. It's got about a 90% cure rate, but if you live another 10 years, that spot may come back. Same spot? Same spot could come back, you know, 10% risk. And you have to go around that whole thing again. So if we have to go around a scar on your face, you double, triple the size of it. So if you can get it all gone the first time, prevent that recurrence. That recurrence rate is just as important as the keeping it small, having a low recurrence rate or a high cure rate. So that's why that 99 plus percent, you want to prevent those recurrences and keep it small. So it's a win-win-win, really. Why are we getting, you said that we're getting cancer uh, young, we're obviously we know we're living longer, but we're getting, you're seeing more cases for younger people. Why is that? Well, there, it's multifactorial. Obviously the ozone is not protecting us as much. The sun intensity, we're being exposed to more. You know, there's changes in that. Um, another thing is, you know, behavioral patterns, you know, cultural practices, you know, unfortunately, tanning um, ha was very popular. It's thankfully becoming less popular, but younger people tend to be using these tanning booths, and that's a similar intense form of radiation, ultraviolet radiation, like what we get from the sun in a tanning booth. And that's kind of increasing the risk in those younger populations. And then the other factor is we have the baby boomer generation. They're starting to get older, and that was before we knew any better. We didn't know that the sun was bad. We used to, you know, my mother, um, friends and family used to go out and tan. They thought it was good for you, you know, put it's attractive. Put the oils Get on. So now we're 20, 30 years out from those times when the cancers can start, you know, to see, uh, present themselves. This isn't the kind of thing where I can say, hey, this skin cancer you have is from a sunburn, you know, back in 1973 on this day. No, it's, it's cumulative. It all adds up. So there's a delay between the damage and when the cancer shows. So the baby boomers getting older, you know, younger people having more sun now ozone depletion, all these things. It's a multifactorial problem, but unfortunately the rates are, are on the rise, but we're, we're also better at catching it early and doing better. Yeah, people, so people are more aware of it. Um, how do we, so there's a baby boomer and you're like, yeah, you know, we can put sunblock on, right? What, and, and they're fine, they have no, how should they, how do they know, you know, obviously, how, what should they be doing? Should they be seeing, should be getting analyzed, even if they've had no history of skin cancer? That's a great what, question. The, what are they supposed to do? I don't have any problems, right? How do they know? Well, I would recommend, you know, seeing a board certified dermatologist once a year for a skin check. Um, if you, even if you have no history of skin cancer, um, if you know you've had sun damage or at least having your primary care doctor check your skin once a year, have a physician check your skin. Ideally, a board certified dermatologist who has some expertise in that. For those people who have had skin cancer, we strongly recommend that they get their skin checked twice a year, a total body skin check by a dermatologist, because once you have one of these skin cancers, the risk of getting another is significantly higher. How much higher? Oh, probably, I, don't, I can't give you an exact number, but I'm sure it's at least 10 to 20% higher. It but could that's be in a different spot. A new, not, not that one coming right. back, but a new one. Because the analogy I give my patients is, if, imagine if you moved into a new house and everything's brand new. If one light bulb goes out, the chance of another light bulb going out in the next year is higher than the previous year. Because there's a delay between mm -hmm. when you install it and when it dies. So if you need sun damage 20, 30 years ago, and now all of a sudden you get your first skin cancer, the chance of you getting another skin cancer in the next few years is significantly higher than the previous year. So for that reason, when we have people with melanoma or basal cell or squamous cell, we follow them more closely. But I do think 
kind of tuning of what you said, even without a, a history, if you know you have sun damage, if you're fair skin, or if you're just worried, if you have a lot of fair moles and things like that, get your skin checked once a year. It won't hurt. And like they say, an ounce of prevention is a, is a pound of cure. So I think getting a regular skin check with a board certified dermatologist is a great way. And also, um, Dr. Nazareth advertises very regularly about this, wearing a good sunscreen every day, at least SPF 30 or higher, the higher the better. You gotta reapply every two hours if you're in intense sun. Um, it all adds up, you know, a lifetime of sun. The, the rates of skin cancer are higher on the left side of your face than the right. Window glass, you're getting it just driving and things like that. So if any little thing you can do, you know, sunscreens, sun avoidance during peak hours, um, getting your skin checked by a doctor, ideally a dermatologist, those all really go a long way. Because if you catch pretty much any skin cancer, even melanoma that can spread, if caught early, just as curable as these ones that we're doing Mozon. So we're in um, a lab? Is this, this is, this is a CLIA approved uh, histology lab, a pathology lab. What does that mean? CLIA, what is, uh, CLIA is like uh, the clinical licensing, uh, it's an approved facility to do laboratory testing um, that's approved by um, hospitals and, and insurance companies. Um, it fits criteria, it's regulated by the state of New York and the federal government. Um, and what that lets us do is usually when you do testing, anytime you have something removed, a cancer, a mole, or whatever, we send it off to a lab, they slice it real thin, put it on glass slides, and a microscope doctor, a pathologist looks at it and says, this is cancer, this is normal, it's removed, it's still here. We can do that testing here in this lab, and that lets us do that during the surgery, because we can do instant testing. We don't have to send it out. You don't have to wait a week to find out, you know, is there good news or bad news? You'll find out in an hour, and then we just, you know, there really is no bad news. If it's still there, well, we know where it is. That's good. It's only wider. It's only deeper. We take it, get it back, repeat that process. So it lets us do on-site testing. So uh, a patient comes in, you, you see something you don't like, so you do a, a biopsy of it, right? And you test it here, mm -hmm. and then within an hour, you're like, if it's good news, bad news, if it's bad news, you don't do the procedure that day, then they set up another date for the procedure and then they come in and... So done. generally with the biopsies to diagnose the cancers, yeah. um, since we don't know what it is, we usually send those out for testing. Okay. They come in to see the dermatologist, we do a biopsy, it looks concerning, we get the results back in a week. But then when they come to see me here, we know what it is, so Got we it. know it's amenable to you this what, type of testing. You know what you're testing. going after. Yeah, it's nice you to know, know in advance. Because you really, you know, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You, 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 just because you can do Mohs on something, you don't need to do it on everything. So you need to know that it's a cancer that you, that you should do Mohs on. So we need to know in advance it's a basal cell or a squamous cell. If it was a melanoma, we treat it a little differently. So they come in, I know what it is, we start and we do the testing. This is more for the Mohs procedure, the instant testing. Gotcha. Yeah. So you're doing the procedure, you've cut out, is that what the type, type yeah. sliced out, yeah. whatever? Excised, you, you yeah. Took, took a piece of it, and then we're in front of... Uh, this machine, and is this where the... This is where the processing goes on. So this is what we call a cryostat, meaning it, uh, cryogen, it, it's, it freezes. It's at very, very cold temperatures. The tissue comes in a little thin slice, like a, like a Nico wafer, a little disc of skin. They freeze that into a block. Um, they embed it with some media that then freezes, so the cells are all frozen. And this thing right here is everything inside of there is at sub-zero temperatures to keep it frozen. And it helps us freeze it quicker. And then it has a blade that lets you slice it very extremely thin to lay it onto glass slides so you can shine light through it and stain those slides so you can see under the microscope the different refraction of light. You can see the cells. You can see how they're growing, what color they are, where they are. And that tissue is inked in a way where we can say, 
you know, this is cancer or this is normal and we know exactly where it is on the body because we're able to make a microscopic map where it is on your body. So if there's cancer roots everywhere, we go everywhere. But if they're only in one little area, we only have to go in that one little area. Whereas most times when people just cut something out, it's a one size fits all excision and they're only looking at about 5% of the edge. Here, since we're doing it on site, we look at 100% of the edge. So we get a higher cure rate. And also, if you send it out for testing like that, it's positive. You don't know where it's positive. You have to go around the whole thing. Here, I know exactly where it's positive. So I'll only go around the whole thing if I need to. So it's extremely tissue sparing. You could do two stages of Mohs surgery and still have a smaller wound than a standard excision that a regular plastic surgeon would do. So the, that, that first stage is done, you're like, you identify there's still some, mm -hmm. some cancer in there, so you just go back. Just right? go back. It's same, it's not Only like where you need to, nothing more, right. nothing less. Right, but it's the yeah. same day. It's same day, instantly, an hour later, you don't, you're still numb, we touch up the numbing and we just do it again. Whereas if they had cut it out and stitched you up already, they would know it's still there, they wouldn't know where it is. Right. So you'd have to go around the whole thing and you'd have to redo the whole procedure again, because you've already been closed and you probably have to wait for that to be healed. Wow. So it could really prolong things. Yeah. So what, what's your, I mean, there's, um, when did you know that you wanted to get into this side? Um, did you always know you wanted to get into medical? I always had an interest in being a doctor. I liked science in high school and I always had a curiosity to learn how things worked growing up, you know, you know, whatever that is, just a curiosity for that. Um, so I had to kind of pull towards, you know, applying science towards helping people. Medicine was logical. Um, the skin always fascinated me. It's the biggest organ. It's constantly in, you know, in communication with the environment. Um, you know, I'm interested in my, I have a background in biochemistry. I like, you know, I'm interested in genetics. So the skin is kind of the way that your genes interact with the environment. I always thought that was interesting. That kind of led me into cancer. Um, I didn't always know going to medical school, I was going to be a surgeon. Some people are like, you know, I want to be a surgeon. They're gunning for that from day one. I, I never particularly felt that way, what but when I got, thinking? what were you thinking? If you weren't sure, I was interested in cancer and genetics and you know, how every individual is different. Okay. Um, and then when I got into dermatology, I got to see, you know, basically using what I know about genetics and cancer and being able to apply that information in a surgery, you know, every surgery is different. Every cancer is different. You can have the same tumor in the same location in two different people. Their skin's different, their history's different, their cancer cells look different, the way they're growing is different, the way you treat it, even if it's the same size defect. I could stitch it into a line on you, but someone else might need a different reconstruction. It's just the, the problem-solving nature of this kind of field really, really stimulates me and it's great. And my patients, you know, rather than a lot of surgeons, there's excellent surgeons in this area, but a lot of times surgery, you know, you see your patient, you do your surgery, maybe you see them in follow-up, and that's it. For me, my patients are awake, I get to talk to them, I see them in follow-up, we follow them in our dermatology clinic, so I get the best of both worlds. I do medicine, I do surgery, and I get to do the, you know, the scientific and the artistic part of things. So it's, it's really diverse, so I, I kind of just stumble into it, and I really love it. I really love it. You mentioned the artistic. Ex explain that. Are you talking about because you're known as, uh, I don't know what the term would be, you can sew people up pretty well. Right? <laughs> yeah, so it's um, the most surgery is the removal, and then there's the reconstructive surgery, which, you know, my fellowship and part of my residency is you learn how to treat skin cancers different ways, and Mohs is one of those. So we're trained in, you know, the Mohs surgery where I can actually read the slides under the microscope. But also part of that training is how to fill that hole, how to fix that hole that you make. Anyone can cut a piece of skin out, 
but how do you repair that in a way where it looks like you didn't have surgery? And uh, that's the reconstructive surgery. We use plastic surgery techniques, reconstructive techniques to um, maximize the cosmetic outcome of the surgery. You know, sometimes it's very straightforward. You know, you have a hole, you let it stitch that into a line. Occasionally, sometimes um, it's better to do nothing. Just let mother nature heal it and do some kind of revisions later. Um, kind of having that wherewithal to know when to do what and how to repair that. And often other times there's larger reconstructions. You need to borrow skin from other areas to hide that scar. So um, a lot of it is kind of plastic artistry, reconstructive surgery. Um, like I said, no, one, no wound is the same. Every person's skin is different. Um, every cancer is different. So every reconstruction is different. So that's really a challenge that I enjoy. I bet then, so there's a lot of stubborn people out there. So I bet that would, you know, oh, I got this and leave it alone and it's no big deal. So the cancer grows, right? So th that probably makes the job, that, that's a bigger challenge when they don't get it identified early enough. So Absolutely. you're saying some of these, these cancers that aren't melanoma, so they're probably not gonna kill the person if they grow but it's not gonna look good, is it? It can be very disfiguring. What I tell my patients is, you know, a lot of these cancers grow very slow, a few millimeters a year or so, um, the ones that are not melanoma. And they tend to have been there for a year or two before you can even see them. But the problem is, you know, it could be like looking at an iceberg at the, at the top, you know, there could be more substance below the surface, you know, those roots in the swamp I mentioned earlier. Um, we're more worried about the cancer breaking down the skin, being a source of infection, damaging nerves, affecting your ability to function. If it's on your nose or near your mouth or in your ear, it can be disfiguring, interfere with you know, your, your smell, your taste, your hearing. And if neglected long enough, they can become a bigger issue, you know, very rarely, but you know, one, 2% of the time, some of these can spread if neglected for many, many, many years. So I tell my patients, it's better to catch them when they're small, treat them when they're small, just a local nuisance before they cause bigger issues. Um, and it's always, you know, it's not something that needs to be treated in days or minutes or weeks, but you want to address it in a few months because if you neglect it, it could become a much bigger surgery and a much bigger hassle. Absolutely. So there's a, a student, you know, a high school student right now, he or she is interested in science or how, what advice do you have to them as far as moving forward and considering your field? Mm -hmm. How do they, I mean, I don't know what to do. Do people laser focus? I know you didn't. You said you, you, you ran into it. You discovered it. Mm -hmm. do, uh, what, 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 what advice do you have for, for um, those high schoolers that are thinking, I might want to get into the medical room. Maybe I want to do what you're doing. Yeah. What should they do? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think the best advice I could give is get some exposure. You know, how can you truly know that you want to do something if you've never witnessed it? You should, you know, try to shadow people, spend some time observing, see what a day in their life or a week in their life is like. Um, internships, externships, you know, reading about it, talking to people, going to meetings. Um, you know, Dr. Nazareth and I, we, you know, we, we have a lot of physician assistant students, medical students, um, college students come through and observe and we're happy to, to help people, you know, kind of get a feel. And there's so much involved you know, if you spent a day with a doctor's office, it's not, you don't, to, to do some of these things, there's so many jobs, you know, I'm sure is what, what you do. There's, you know, not just the physician, there's, there's the nurse practitioners, the physician's assistants, the nurses, the rumors, the front office staff, the managers, the technicians in the lab. There may be something that you never even thought about that, you, that could suit you well. So I think just explore, 
keep an open mind. I mean, if you know what you want, that's awesome. Focus on that like a laser, but at least do your due diligence to know that, you know, if you spend a few days doing that, you actually like it. You know, people could tell you, you know, there's influences. I want you to be a lawyer. I want you to be a doctor. I want you to be a politician, but you should, should spend some time doing those things and, and make sure you actually enjoy that. Because if you, you know what they say, if you, lo if you love what you do, you don't work. It's like you don't work a day in your life. And I, lo I love what I do. I, I enjoy going into work in the morning. It's, I, I would, I'd probably come here even if I wasn't getting paid. So um, that's the best advice I could, I could give someone. I think it's um, uh, one thing about uh, Dr. Nazareth that I've talked about with him before is bedside manner. You both, um, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know you well enough to say I would think you seem to enjoy people. You enjoy that part of it. You enjoy oh, yeah. that. Yeah. And how important is, because a lot of doctors get a fair or unfair rap of bad bedside manner, come in, Maybe in the old days, and just uh, um, direct. This is the de this is the deal, and and run out. Cancer kid, good luck. All right, mm -hmm. but um, you guys have a different. I don't know if it's a different approach or if it's just the way modern medicine is. How important is it for these young people to? It's almost like customer service. Like you got to have a customer service yeah, absolutely. background. Absolutely. How, how how important is that? Or if people, if someone. So not every, it's not meant for everyone, I guess is my mm -hmm. point. Some people mm -hmm. are more loners and don't want to be, but they could offer something in, in the medical field. Absolutely, you know, what, absolutely. What, what can those people do or how do they, maybe they don't like interacting with people. Yeah, and that's a great point. So I do agree with you. Healthcare, whether we like it or not, is a service industry. And I think a lot of things, whether you like it or not, is a service industry. I mean, if you're interacting with the public, you know, you could do the best job possible but if the patient doesn't understand what you did, why you did it, or the rationale, or you don't communicate with them well with them, it's it's all for naught. You can be the worst doctor ever, but if but if they like you, they won't even know the difference. So what I, I learned that very quickly that I wanna I really take great pride in making sure that my patients know what we're doing, why we're doing it, answer their questions, and spend time with them. And I just try to treat people the way I'd want to be treated myself. And working with Dr. Nazareth, I mean, it was a natural kind of affinity. I know, I've known him for a long time. I know we have a similar philosophy and we want to put the patients first. And that's because that's how we want to be treated. That's how we want our family to be treated. And I think that goes a long way. You know, speaking of what you were saying about, you know, some people aren't people, people persons. I totally get that. You know, there's introverts, there's extroverts, there's shades of gray in between. In any field, there's parts of it that you're more on the front lines with the public. There's parts that you aren't. You know, you could be the behind the scenes person. You know, the unsung hero, the, the person who makes, makes things move along, the schedulers, you know, the, the billers, the, uh, the cleaning staff, that's all part, I mean, as long, I think personally, as long as you're a part of a team and you're, you're on the same page, there's more than one way to fulfill that goal. But also, if you're in this environment, maybe it'll push you to, to challenge yourself, to become more social, to work on those communication skills. I mean, those are things we all need in some respect. I mean, you don't have to be the best communicator, but you don't want to be the worst, you know? So... I think just being in that environment, I'm sure if I spend a day with you, I mean, there's so many people that I've met through you doing different things. I mean, there's, there's skills that are transferable. You know, it's not, a lot of these skills are not just healthcare related, they're, they're life related, you know? So that's what I think is fun with my staff and our employees. I try to find things that they like and engage with them like that. Cause then it's like, it's more of like a, a cultural mission. You know, it's not just a medical mission.
So. Well, Doc, congratulations on uh, on this. This place is beautiful, by the way. Well, thank you. you guys have yeah. done a great it's job. Fantastic building. We thank really credit to Dr. Nazareth and the staff for putting it together as well. And, and uh, the uh, the the. Uh, the people who did the construction did an excellent yeah. job, and the developer, John Yurchuk, class act. So we're very happy with the work. Yeah, yeah. it is. It's a nice place. Uh, uh, Mohs Surgery at Western New York Dermatology. We're here in Williamsville. Dr. Jason Rizzo was our guest today for a Sidewalk Talk. Um, you know, you can download all of our Sidewalk Talk podcasts on uh, whatever podcast platform you choose, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, etc., you can also watch any of our podcasts by visiting our website, shovelthesidewalk.com. Also, if you or someone you know wants to be a guest on our show uh, because you have a story that needs to be shared, you can let us know by completing a, a simple form on our website. Thanks again to, uh, we can't do this without our sponsor, Vandalay Industries. You know George and his team. They do a great job. We appreciate Always. them helping us out. Thanks again for listening and watching uh, and uh, participating. I'm Steve Fortunato, and this has been Sidewalk Talk.